Hey there, and welcome to the When's My Time podcast. I'm Ozzy Eyre, and you'll have already noticed there's a, a little bit different today. Uh, it's not my usual um, sign-in, and uh, there's no music today, and there's a reason for that. This is not the usual fairly upbeat thing. It's not going to be depressing. It's not nothing like that. But I do need to mark an anniversary today, because today is Friday the 21st of October 2016. And I need to mark something that happened 50 years ago. Now, for a lot of you listening to 50 years will seem like ancient history. Um, People of my generation, though, no, it seems like yesterday. 50 years ago today, there was something that happened in a small valley in South Wales, which irrevocably linked the name of that valley to tragedy. Uh, The name of the village is Aberfan. Aberfan was, like many uh, valley towns and villages in Wales, was a, a mining uh, village. Um, as indeed, were, I grew up in coal mining um, almost 200 miles away from there. My father worked in the coal mines. My grandfather did. My uncle did. And in fact, for a very short time, I myself worked at an open cast coal mine. Uh, I've talked about that in other times, and that's not the point of this. So, But mining is something that's now pretty much died out in the UK, but it still, for people who are connected with mining, um, it still bonds us. Now, that may seem silly, it may seem airy-fairy, it may seem nonsensical, but there is a bond between people who have been touched by mining. I suppose because it's a, a dangerous activity and it is well known to be associated with with tragedy. And this was a tragedy that happened in Aberfan on the 21st of October 1966. But it was a tragedy of a different sort. You see, normally mining tragedies killed the mine workers themselves. But this one was different. This one was so different. What this was... Now, if you're familiar with mining, uh, and maybe you're not, not many people are in these days, particularly in the UK. Mining has a habit, or part of the process of mining, is to actually create a lot of waste product. It's called slag. It's, it's the stuff that is dug out of the hole, but is not coal, it's not usable, it no, has no commercial value whatsoever. And so the practice is to just build a big pile of this stuff. And every colliery, every mine had at least one slag heap. They're called slag heaps or um, spoil tips, some people call them. But slag heaps is what I grew up with in Derbyshire knowing them as. And these are big, usually black and unsightly, dirty hills of waste material. And the mine above Aberfan, high up on the hill above Aberfan, was no different. And what had happened is a slag heap had been built on, I mean, it's more of a mountain than, than, than a hill, high up on the mountain, above the village. And not only above the village, directly above the junior school. And in the days and weeks leading up to this day, the 21st of October 1966, it had rained more or less incessantly. And the slag heap itself was built above porous sandstone, which had many springs in it. Uh, Water just ran through it. 
And what happened was the slag itself became, I suppose, emulsified, a bit like quicksand. And on that fateful morning, it just avalanched down the hillside, knocked out farm buildings along the way, farmhouses along the way, but then descended upon the junior school. And in that moment, 144 lives were wiped out, 118 of them children. Why does this ring so vividly with me? I mean, firstly, of course it was a tragedy, but tragedies happen all the time, don't they? But there was nothing like this. These kids were my age. You must understand that I was, I was eight years old at the time, and these kids were around my age. And I remember... I used to go home from school for my lunch. And I remember watching the news bulletins and I was a little bit amused, if you like, because I didn't... At eight, you can't comprehend that sort of stuff. Those days, Wells could literally have been the other side of the world, not just a couple of hundred miles to me. But I remember seeing the, the absolute horror and the drawn look on my mother's face as she watched this, because... As I say, we were part of a mining community. We knew mining. And I'd alluded to the fact that mining is a dangerous occupation. My my own father had survived a a roof fall in a mine. He'd fortunately been the other side of it. But when the rescue team came down, led by my father's best friend, my father's best friend found my dad's shirt. A message was already got to my mum to expect the worst. This was years before this. Fortunately, my father, as I say, was the other side and he was rescued and barely a scratch on him. But for a time, um, there was that real fear. So so those things um, are writ large upon my, uh, upon my psyche, if you like. Um, but this was different. This was not the mine workers. This was children of my age who had been wiped out by mining. This was children uh, uh, of my age who would now be my age, would now be in their 50s, would now be approaching 60. Now, I remember seeing this this dreadful look on my mother's face, one that I hadn't seen before as she watched this. And as I say, as an eight-year-old, I, I couldn't understand it. And w- with the unintended callousness, I, I remember this, and I still feel total shame at telling you this, but I, I'm going to be as honest as I can. I still feel total shame in telling you this. But I remember as part of the news report, they explained how it was made, if it was possible to make it more tragic, it was made even more tragic by the fact that this had happened early in the morning. And at lunchtime that very day, those children were due to finish school for their half-term holiday. So had it happened three hours later, there would have been no children in the school. There may still have been some teachers there, but there'd have been no children in that school. I'm not saying they will have all of escaped, but the death toll would have been so much lower. So they, they made this point. And with the weird and unintentionally callous logic of a child of eight, I turned to my mum and said, oh, that's not fair. We've got to go to school, back to school this afternoon. They were going to finish at lunchtime. And I remember now my mother just looking at me and then she really let rip at me. Uh, and and quite right. I mean, she didn't physically. I didn't mean she physically had a go at me, but she um, 
She told me in no uncertain terms what a dreadful thing it was I'd just said. But I still didn't really understand. I understood I'd said a dreadful thing, of course, because my mum had told me I'd said a dreadful thing, and I sort of understood what she was saying, but I was eight years old. I didn't understand that. And then I saw my father in the evening, because obviously news had spread, and my father in the evening. I mean, it was just, it was just terrible. And so on that day, the whole of that village just changed. Because there, there, there were some surviving kids. There were some kids who were actually pulled out. I think it was 10 in total that were pulled out alive. But they'd been robbed of their childhood. Their friends were all gone. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that as a child? You're an oddity now in the village. And you're a source, it seems, in some reports afterwards, of, of bitterness. There was actual bitterness between those families who'd lost children and those who hadn't. And I say, can you imagine? I, I can sort of understand that as well. I can understand that. Because you'd be thinking, why my kid? Why my kid? Why did they survive? And so the temptation would always be there to do that, wouldn't it? So, as I say, I, I, I remember that strongly, partly because it was so dreadful, but partly as well because of my own shameful comment. It seems crazy 50 years to the day later to remember that feeling. I had said it without any malice. All I'd heard was that they were due to finish at lunchtime and I'd just equated it to the fact that I'd got to go back to school after lunch. I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm saying it was a dreadful thing to say. I feel the shame of having said that. So there I was 200 miles away, or nearly 200 miles away. Rather closer to it, though, at this time. I didn't know this because I wouldn't meet her for another 12 years was the little girl that, when she grew up, I would later marry. She felt the whole thing much more strongly. Because, A, she was very close. She was just sort of down the valley from, from where it had happened. And B, she could look from her schoolroom window. And on the hill, above her schoolroom window, was a slag heap. And so for a long time, she was very, very frightened. Very, very frightened. So Carol's memory of this is, is far different from mine, although they're both horrific. As I say, I met her 12 years later when we were both living in London, and three years after that, so 15 years after the event, we got married in the Welsh Valleys. Now this may seem odd, but this is how large this was writ in our in our lives, this story of Abavan. Anybody who's been born after that date probably is aware of it, but doesn't feel it the way we did. The day after our wedding, we drove to the cemetery in Abavan, and we walked amongst the graves. And I bawled my eyes out. I absolutely bawled my eyes out. Because I now understood what I didn't understand as an eight-year-old kid, I understood. Those kids should have been alive. Those kids should have been having the lives that we had. We'd been married the day before. Why weren't they getting married? Why weren't they looking out to going out with their boyfriend or their girlfriend? It made no sense. But I understood the tragedy of it. I couldn't feel it. Of course I couldn't feel it by, in the same way as someone who'd experienced it firsthand. Someone who'd been in that 
village, someone who'd lost their child, who had lost their playmate, who had grown up not having had a proper childhood. I couldn't understand that. I couldn't feel it in the same way as they did, but I understood the tragedy. And why am I talking about it today? Now, I'm not going to make any sort of crass points here, I hope, but it's just to emphasise again this idea that we get one shot at this. Let's not waste it. I mean, we owe it. I feel I owe it to those kids to live the best life I can because they didn't get the chance. I just want to finish on something. I, now, I'm going to put a link. I think probably if you if you go to the website, I'm going to put a link to a story on the BBC News site uh, because it's a very well-written piece about it, a retrospective of what happened and some heartbreaking photographs. But I, I would suggest that you go there. But I, I'm going to read a short passage from that page now. And um, it's talking about the, the fact that the avalanche of... of spoil the the slag heap that came struck just 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 at the wrong time had it been a little later this tragedy there would have been people killed but it would not have been anything like this so here we go if only fate had played its hand 20 minutes earlier the school would have been empty One tipping gang worker told a subsequent inquiry how the slide began. Now, the tipping gang were the guys who were building the slag heap up on the hill. They were tipping slurry onto the top of the hill. It was starting to come back up, he said. It started to rise slowly at first, sir. I thought I was seeing things. Then it rose up pretty fast, sir, at a tremendous speed. Then it sort of came up out of the depression and turned itself into a wave down towards the mountain, towards Abervan village into the mist. Seconds later, the bottom of the tip shot out. Down in Pantglass Junior School, the lights began to flicker and sway, an ominous roar, like a jet plane screaming low over the school in the fog. The glistening black avalanche consumed rocks, trees, farm cottages, then ruptured the Brecon Beacons to Cardiff water main, engorging it further and increasing the velocity of its murderous descent towards Pantglass. Seconds after it hit, Cyril Vaughan, a teacher at the neighbouring senior school said, everything was so quiet, as if nature had realised that a tremendous mistake had been made and nature was speechless. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much indeed for listening. I know this hasn't been the usual podcast, but I hope you can take something from it. And as I say, over at whensmytime.com on this episode, I will put the link to the page where that passage is from. And I'd urge you to go and look at it. Not to make you sombre, not to make you morbid, not to upset anybody, not to do anything of that sort. But to remind yourself how precious life is and how in a moment it can be snuffed out. Thanks again for listening. I've been Ozzy Air. And again, I'm not going to finish in the usual way. Thank you. <laughs>